Section 55 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 15, Philip and Mary, by James Bass Mullinger, Part 2. On October 1, Mary was crowned in Westminster Abbey, the procession from the tower and the entire ceremonial being marked by much splendor and by a revival of all the features and details which belonged to such ceremonies in medieval times. The whole court also now resumed the brilliant attire and costly adornments of the reign of Henry VIII. On the 5th of the month, Mary's first Parliament assembled. The Council, out of deference to the royal wishes, had contemplated measures which would have reversed all the anti-papal enactments of both the preceding reigns. But here the Commons assumed a decisive attitude, and it was eventually determined that the question of restoring the lands and other property which had been wrested from the Church and the suppressed monasteries should not be considered, and that, with respect to the supremacy in matters of religion, legislation should go back no further than to the commencement of Edward's reign. Whatever appeared to favor papal authority was, as Mary in a letter to Pole herself admitted, regarded with suspicion. On the other hand, much was done to propitiate the new sovereign. A bill was at once brought in, legalizing the marriage of Catherine of Aragon, and abolishing all disabilities attaching to the profession of the old faith. The opposition of the Protestant party in the house caused a certain delay, but after an interval of three days, the ministers brought in two bills, the one affirming the legality of Catherine's marriage without adverting to the papal decision, the other rescinding the legislation affecting religious worship and the church during the reign of the late king. The retrospective force of the latter bill went, however, no further, the ecclesiastical supremacy of the crown being still tacitly admitted. But, on the other hand, it involved the renunciation of the chief results of Cranmer's efforts during the preceding reign. The reformed liturgy, the first and second books of common prayer, the administration of the sacrament in both kinds, and the recognition of a married clergy, and was consequently not allowed to pass without considerable opposition. But its opponents, although representing nearly a third of the lower house, did not deem it prudent to press the question to a division, and in the upper house no resistance was offered. It was manifest that conclusions so incompatible, the recognition of Mary as head of the Church in England, and the tacit assumption of the papal supremacy, represented a temporizing policy which was not likely to secure the permanent support of either party. Cardinal Pole declared himself profoundly dissatisfied. The divine favor had recently been conspicuously shown in that outburst of loyal feeling which had secured Mary's succession, and sovereign and people alike were bound by gratitude forthwith to seek reconciliation 
with the holy see and to afford its legate an honorable reception the emperor and gardener on the other hand still counseled caution and more especially patience in awaiting the results of a gradual re-establishment of that roman ritual which early association and religious sentiment endeared to the hearts of a majority of the population in common with many of her subjects the queen herself firmly believed that nothing would more effectually contribute to the desired end than the prospect of a catholic heir to the throne and although in her thirty-seventh year and in infirm health she consequently regarded her own marriage as a duty to the state but even if personal predilection was to be sacrificed on the altar of duty her choice of a husband was a matter involving anxious consideration amid the conflicting claims of the national welfare and of the catholic faith in its broadest phase the question lay between a native of her own country and a foreigner the nation undoubtedly wished to see her married to one of her own nobles it is equally certain that mary's devout attachment to the interests of the roman church inclined her to look abroad in the course of the year following upon her accession report singled out three supposed claimants for her hand of whom one was sixteen years her senior the other two each about ten years her junior there is no evidence that reginald pole ever aspired to marry mary or that she in turn ever regarded him in any other light than that of a much valued friend and counsellor the personal graces and touching experiences of edward courtenay might well recommend him to a woman's sympathies he was the son of edward courtenay marquis of exeter who had been executed in fifteen thirty nine for his share in the conspiracy in favour of reginald pole and was thus the great-grandson of edward the fourth mary herself had just freed him from an imprisonment of nearly fifteen years and had created him earl of devonshire while at her coronation he was selected to bear the sword before her his mother the marchioness of exeter one of mary's dearest friends was now one of her ladies-in-waiting his long isolation from society and neglected education had however ill qualified him to play a part in politics while the fascinations which surrounded him in his newly acquired freedom proved too potent for his self-control and his wild debaucheries became the scandal of the capital whatever influence pole might have been able to exert would probably have favored courtenay's claims as a boy both he and his brother geoffrey had received much kindness from the marquis of exeter the young earl's father favors which geoffrey had ill repaid by bearing evidence which brought the marquis to the scaffold and pole's own mother the countess of salisbury prior to her tragic execution had shared the captivity of the marchioness but courtenay's indiscretions soon rendered the efforts of his best friends nugatory it now became known that his conduct had completely lost him mary's favor and he was next heard of as conspiring against his would-be benefactress to a fairly impartial observer 
it might well have seemed that the arguments for and against the spanish marriage were of nearly equal force certain political advantages were obvious and as renard pointed out to the queen herself it would afford the necessary counterbalance to the matrimonial alliance which already existed between france and scotland while the national antipathy to spaniards having its origin in commercial rivalry could hardly be supposed to extend to a great prince like philip on the other hand it would be necessary to obtain the papal dispensation for mary and philip were within the degrees of consanguinity forbidden by the canon law there also appeared to be considerable danger as regarded the succession for if mary died without issue as seemed highly probable it was difficult to foresee what claims her husband might not advance such were the circumstances in which gardiner who had formed a regard for courtenay when they were prisoners together had in the first instance suggested that the queen should marry the young english noble and that elizabeth should be excluded from the succession while paget who had just received back his garter thought it best that mary's choice should be left free but that she should recognize elizabeth as her presumptive successor the great majority of the nobles and gentry whether catholic or protestant were divided and perplexed by the opposing considerations of the danger of a foreign yoke the hope of seeing an hereditary faith restored and the necessity which might yet ensue of being called upon to surrender those former possessions of the church which constituted in many cases the present holders chief wealth a selection which would draw closer the ties between england and spain was naturally regarded with jealousy by the french monarch and noailles was instructed to use every effort to avert it he accordingly plied his arguments and persuasions with untiring assiduity in every direction and so far succeeded that the commons were prevailed upon to vote an address to the crown in which while urging upon mary the desirability of marriage they also advised that her choice should be restricted to the peerage of her own realm a week later reynard had an audience of the queen at which he made the offer from charles himself of philip's hand mary had previously made careful enquiry of the ambassador himself respecting the prince's habits and natural disposition and after a short time had been allowed to elapse for apparent deliberation intimated her acceptance of the offer such were the circumstances in which on november seventeenth the commons presented the above-mentioned address the customary mode of procedure required that gardiner as chancellor should be the royal mouthpiece in reply but mary rising from her throne herself gave answer and did so if we may credit reynard in terms of some asperity repudiating the right of the commons to control her decision and declaring that elizabeth who was illegitimate should never be her successor early in december it was rumoured that courtenay was making advances to elizabeth and that noailles was playing the part of go-between elizabeth accordingly deemed it prudent to request her sister's permission to retire to her seat at ashridge in hertfordshire and her application was granted by mary with every demonstration of cordial affection 
the triumph of the imperialist party seemed complete and noailles was fain to report to henry that mary seemed more spanish than english in her sympathies the chancellor himself now that courtenay's chances appeared to be at an end came forward as a supporter of the match with spain and proceeded to take a foremost part in the negotiations with respect to the various questions direct and collateral which such an alliance involved the marriage treaty itself the provisions in case of issue and those in case of failure on january two fifteen fifty four count egmont and other plenipotentiaries appeared in london duly empowered to make the final arrangements courtenay himself gave them official welcome at tower hill and conducted them to westminster on the fourteenth gardiner read aloud in the presence chamber the articles which had been agreed upon and pointed out the political advantages which would result from such an alliance the articles originally extending over thirteen pages had been expanded to twenty-two and represented the labors of ten commissioners those cooperating with reynard the counts egmont and lalange de courier and philip nigri those appointed by the queen gardiner arundel paget sir robert rochester and peter as finally agreed upon the treaty must be held highly creditable to gardiner's sagacity and ability and when eighteen years afterwards the marriage of elizabeth with the duke of anjou was in contemplation it served as the model for that which was then to be drawn up it has however been pointed out as a somewhat suspicious feature that the concessions were all on the imperial side if indeed treaties could bind philip stood hand tied in his relations to england while nominally sharing the government with the queen he was pledged scrupulously to respect the laws privileges and customs of the realm he was to settle on her a jointure of sixty thousand pounds their offspring were to succeed them in england in conformity with the traditional rights and might also succeed to the territories in burgundy and flanders and in the event of philip's son don carlos dying without issue this right of succession was to extend to spain milan and the two sicilies should mary's marriage be unfruitful philip's connection with england was to cease at her death under no pretext was england to be made participant in the war between the emperor and france in the meantime cardinal pole's arrival in brussels had been retarded by a long and involuntary stay at the university town of dillingen the residence of the bishop of augsburg while his endeavours to carry on his correspondence with mary had been frustrated their messengers having been stopped on each side of the channel it was with difficulty that she had conveyed to him the simple intimation that as matters then stood his appearance in england as the legate of the holy see might prove disastrous to the cause which they both had nearest at heart but at length making his way with nervous haste through the plague-smitten towns of germany he was able through the good offices of fray di sotto 
who held a chair of divinity at Dillingen, to present himself at the imperial court where he arrived in January 1554, and Mary's marriage with Philip being by this time virtually decided, his reception was both cordial and splendid. The assurances which he received from Charles and his ministers were indeed so flattering that he even ventured to hope that his mission as a peacemaker might yet be crowned with success. But long before the cardinal could present himself at the French court, a fresh crisis had supervened in England. Here the belief was fast gaining ground that the realm was destined to become a dependency of Spain, while in France it was no less firmly believed that Philip's marriage would be made the opportunity for the subjugation of Scotland. Henry, placing no reliance on Mary's pacific assurances, deemed it advisable to send troops into that country, while Wotton, convinced that war was imminent, petitioned to be recalled. That Elizabeth should marry Courtenay and supplant her sister on the throne now seemed to be the issue most favorable to French interests, and while Henry's ambassadors at the English court did their best to foment the growing suspicion of Spain, the monarch himself strove to spread the rumor of a fresh rising in England. Writing to his envoy in Venice, he gave him the earliest intelligence of a rising in Kent, and on February 18, Peter Van, writing to Mary, enclosed a copy of Henry's letter. According to the intelligence he had received from Noailles, Henry added, it was almost certain that all England would imitate the example thus set, and, quote, prefer to die in battle rather than become subject to a foreign prince, end quote. As early as Christmas, the conspirators assembling in London had concerted a general rising, which, however, was not to take place until March 18. Their plans, however, had been suspected, and Gardiner, having wrung from the weak and faithless Courtenay a full confession of the plot, had taken prompt measures for its repression. The ringleaders, who were thus anticipated in their designs nearly two months before the time agreed upon for carrying them into execution, flew recklessly to arms. Suffolk and Sir James Croft, each seeking to raise his tenantry, the one in Warwickshire, the other in Wales, were both arrested and consigned to the Tower before the second week in February had passed. In Devonshire, towards the close of January, local feeling appears to have led a certain number of the gentry to make a demonstration in Courtenay's favour. Sir Peter Carew, who had been sheriff of the county, being foremost among them. His family, however, were unpopular and commanded but little influence, and the other leaders, after vainly awaiting Courtenay's promised appearance at Exeter, suddenly dispersed in panic. Carew fled to Paris and thence to Venice, where his adventurous and turbulent career was nearly brought to a conclusion by bravos whom peter van was accused of having hired to assassinate him the chief danger arose in kent where sir thomas wyatt a bold and skilful leader succeeded in collecting a considerable force at rochester which was shortly after augmented by two thousand men 
who had deserted from the standard of Lord Abergavenny near Rotham Heath. This gathering was the response to a proclamation which he had previously, January 25, issued at Maidstone, in which Mary's supporters were denounced as aiming at the perpetual servitude of her most loving subjects. Englishmen were adjured to rise in defense of liberty and the commonwealth, while intimation was given that aid was on its way from France. With Noai, Wyatt appears actually to have been in correspondence. The council were divided as to the course which should be pursued and distracted by mutual recriminations, while they also evinced no alacrity in taking measures for the raising of troops. Mary, whom Renard dissuaded from quitting the capital, exhibited, on the other hand, a courage and a resolution which roused the loyal feeling of all around her, while part of the city guard at once set out to meet the insurgents, the corporation proceeded to arm an additional force of five hundred men to follow in their track. As they approached Rochester Bridge, the Duke of Norfolk, by whom they were commanded, sent forward a herald to proclaim that, quote, all such as would desist their purpose shall have frank and free pardon, end quote. On February 1, the Queen herself appeared at a gathering of the citizens in the Guild Hall and delivered a speech which excited general enthusiasm. Quiet, she said, had demanded to be entrusted with the care of her person, the keeping of the tower, and the placing of her counsellors. She was convinced that her loyal subjects would never consent that such confidence should be placed in so vile a traitor. As for her marriage, the conspirators were simply making it, quote, a Spanish cloak to cover their pretended purpose against our religion, end quote. The council had pronounced her marriage expedient, quote, both for the wealth of the realm and also of you, our subjects, end quote. Should the nobility and the commons deem it otherwise, she was willing, quote, to abstain from marriage while she lived, end quote. Her courage and outspokenness produced a considerable effect. For two days later, Noai sent word that the populace who had been reported to be meditating an attack on the palace and the consignment of Mary herself into Wyatt's hands were actively occupied with putting the city into a state of defense, and had mustered to the number of 25,000 armed men. To whoever should succeed in making Wyatt a prisoner and bringing him before the council, a reward of an annuity of 100 pounds was held out, payable in perpetuity to himself and his descendants. At this juncture, Wyatt appeared in Southwark, but his army amounted only to some 7,000 men. No force had arrived from France, while the royal army was daily receiving reinforcements. The contemporary chronicler has described in graphic narrative the incidents of the final episode, Wyatt's arrival at Hyde Park Corner, the fierce fighting that ensued as he pressed on to the city, the flight of the cowardly Courtenay, Lord Howard's resolute refusal to open Ludgate, Wyatt's consequent retreat in the direction of Charing Cross, and surrender at Temple Bar. The number of those slain in the fighting was about forty, 
fifty of the conspirators were afterwards hanged the rest were allowed to betake themselves to their homes mary's former clemency had been censured by charles and the queen herself justifiably incensed at the manner in which that clemency had been requited was determined not to err again in the same direction gardiner preaching in her presence on february eleven exhorted her now to have mercy on the commonwealth quote, the conservation of which required that hurtful members should be cut off end quote. on the following day the tragedy of the execution of the lady jane and lord guilford dudley took place on tower hill of suffolk's duplicity and entire want of good faith there could be no doubt while his known sympathy with the continental reformers filled up the measure of his offence and his execution followed about a week later wyatt and suffolk's wealthy and ambitious brother lord thomas gray suffered the same fate in the following april on the same day that the executions commenced courtenay again found himself a prisoner in the tower here he was confronted with wyatt who directly accused him of complicity in the rebellion and for a time his fate seemed doubtful a few weeks later however he was removed to fotheringay and a year after he was released on parole on condition that he quitted the kingdom when he selected padua as the place of his retirement the last of the rebels to suffer was william thomas clerk of the council under edward the sixth whose execution took place on may eighteen according to the statement of wyatt in his confession before the commission thomas had been the first to suggest the assassination of mary in the tower he attempted suicide and no detail of ignominy was omitted at his execution from each victim an endeavour was made to extort evidence which might assist the authorities in tracing the conspiracy to its suspected origin and the investigations were consequently lengthened charles although he still counselled caution and deliberation in dealing with matters of religion urged promptitude in the punishment of the conspirators so that mary quote, while taking such measures as seemed requisite for her own security in regard to elizabeth and courtenay might the sooner be able to exercise clemency towards those whom she designed to spare and thus reassure the great majority the emperor indeed found her procrastination so inexplicable that he was inclined to attribute it to a desire on the part of gardiner to protect courtenay at the commencement of the outbreak mary had summoned elizabeth back to court where a closer surveillance could be maintained over her movements the princess deferred compliance under the plea of illness but on february twenty two she arrived in a litter at st james's here she remained a virtual prisoner until march eighteen when the order was given for her removal to the tower thence on may eighteen she was removed to woodstock where she continued to reside until the following april under the custody of sir henry beddingfield closely watched and deprived of writing materials but allowed to have service performed according to the english ritual after the conspiracy had been crushed 
charles strongly urged that the princess should be executed on the ground of her connivance at wyatt's plans wyatt himself indeed in his last words on the scaffold completely and emphatically exonerated her it was asserted however that there was documentary evidence of her guilt but that it was destroyed by gardiner to whose exertions she was at this crisis probably indebted for her life the gain to the imperial power which would accrue from the marriage between mary and philip had been regarded by venice with an apprehension scarcely less than that of france and it was an ascertained fact that a venetian carrack anchored at the mouth of the thames had supplied wyatt with arms and a cannon suspicion fell upon soranzo but on being interrogated before the council he stoutly denied all knowledge of the transaction although complaints against him continued to be urged and the charge itself was formally preferred by vargas in venice on march twenty seven accordingly soranzo's letters of recall were drawn up and giovanni michiel was appointed his successor on may twenty two the latter arrived in england it probably attests his impartiality in the discharge of his functions that both by renard and noailles he was subsequently reproached as favoring the opposite party he appears in reality to have conducted himself throughout with discretion and probity and while gaining the esteem of the most discerning judges with whom he came in contact in england he continued to command the undiminished confidence of the venetian council in march pole had arrived at st denis and shortly after had an audience of the king by whom he was received with marked cordiality the question of mary's marriage was naturally one on which the expression of his views was invited and he was unable to conceal his personal conviction that courtenay's political career having now terminated it would be better that the queen of england should remain unmarried in any case he admitted that her marriage with philip appeared to him undesirable that such was his opinion soon became known at the imperial court and on his return to brussels in april he not only received a sharp rebuke from the emperor but shortly after learned that charles had urged in rome the desirability of his recall he continued however to reside in the monastery of dilligum near brussels for pope julius could not but feel that his presence as legate in england would soon be indispensable but for the present the fact that his attainder by parliament was still unreversed and the evident expediency of reassuring those who now held the alienated church lands as to his intentions with regard to their restitution sufficed to justify a slight further delay in the meantime the reaction which ensued after the insurrection had been suppressed had enabled mary to make known her policy and to carry it into effect with less reserve in march egmont returned from brussels and in his presence and that of the earl of pembroke the queen formally betrothed herself to philip every effort was now made to diffuse throughout the country the belief that the marriage would prove conducive to the stability of the realm and to the increase of its prestige 
Watton, writing to Noailles from Paris, pointed out at some length that the involved alliance with Spain was England's indispensable rejoinder to the danger which menaced her through the conjunction of France with Scotland, while he further maintained that it was as a means of defense against this ominous combination that Charles desired to bring about a union between England and Flanders, between the house of Tudor and that of Habsburg. As for the intention with which France credited him, the subjugation of the country and the disarming of its population, such designs had no place in the imperial breast. In support of these views, he adduced the fact that large numbers of the English malcontents were daily arriving in France, seeking service under Henry, quote, in order to carry on the war against the emperor by sea, end quote. The assembling of Mary's second parliament, April 2, 1554, at Westminster, also served from the contrast it presented to its predecessor to emphasize a new departure in public affairs. Not more than 70 of the members of the former house reappeared in the new, and the entire body evinced a spirit of far more ready compliance with the royal wishes. The leading members accepted gratefully the pensions which Mary, aided by the imperial liberality, was able to offer them. And the marriage bill, as it came down from the upper house, received a ready assent. The necessity for discussion, indeed, was diminished by the fact that the conditions already agreed upon between Charles and Gardiner were now restated with explanatory clauses to obviate misinterpretation. It was also expressly stipulated that the royal match should not in any way, quote, derogate from the league recently concluded between the Queen and the King of France, but that the peace between the English and the French should remain firm and inviolate. End quote. Some opposition was offered, however, to the proposal to repeal the two acts for the dissolution of the Bishopric of Durham, the measure being carried by a majority of only eighty-one in a house of three hundred twenty-one. Her main objects thus attained, Mary dismissed Parliament on May 5, and for the next two months her energies and attention were mainly concentrated on the preparations for the reception of Philip, who arrived from Coruna in Southampton Water on July 20. He was escorted on the voyage by 150 vessels, carrying a splendid retinue and treasure in bullion amounting to half a million of English money. The marriage ceremony performed by Gardiner took place in the cathedral church of his own diocese of Winchester. At the conclusion, proclamation was made of the future style of Philip and his bride, quote, King and Queen of England, France, Naples, Jerusalem, and Ireland, defenders of the faith, princes of Spain and Castile, archdukes of Austria, dukes of Milan, Burgundy, and Brabant, Counts of Habsburg, Flanders, and Tyrol. End quote. Their public entry into London took place towards the close of August, and the capital now became thronged with Spaniards, among whom priests and friars formed a considerable element. 
the regularity with which philip attended mass and observed the other offices of his church was necessarily construed into evidence of his designs for the restoration of the roman worship nor can it be doubted that both to him and mary this appeared as the paramount object commanding their attention among the royal advisers gardiner and paget by virtue of both experience and ability assumed the foremost place neither however could be said to be recommended by consistency of principle in his past career they had at more than one juncture been rivals and even bitter enemies and they still differed widely in their policy and aims while gardiner who aspired to a dictatorship in the council insisted on immediate and coercive measures against heresy paget although admitting that the re-establishment of the ancient faith was essential to a satisfactory adjustment of the affairs of the realm demurred to what he termed methods of quote, fire and blood in their perplexity the two sovereigns appear alike to have come to the conclusion that it might be well to take counsel with advisers who by their remoteness from the theatre of recent events might be better able to take a dispassionate view foremost among these stood reginald pole who as legate had already in the preceding april at mary's request nominated six more bishops to fill the vacant sees white to lincoln bourne to bath morgan to st david's brooks to gloucester coates to chester griffith to rochester in a highly characteristic letter the legate himself now appealed to king philip to admit him as the vicar of christ quote, at that door at which he had so long knocked in vain end quote. a precedent afforded by the records of gardiner's own see of winchester was at the same time opportunely brought forward as a solution of the difficulty caused by pole's still unreversed attainder in the fifteenth century when the proctor of the english crown appealed against the exercise of the legatine functions with which martin v had invested cardinal beaufort at that time also bishop of winchester it had been suggested that beaufort might act tanquam cardinalis although not tanquam legatus it was now ruled that pole might be admitted into the realm as a cardinal ambassador although not as legate while the apprehensions which this decision might have aroused were to a great extent dissipated when it was known that he had obtained from the pontiff powers whereby he would be able to grant to all holders of monastic and collegiate lands the right of continuing in possession End of section 55. Recording by Linda Johnson.